Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening in. We're back with another episode of Lit Pulpit. My name is Claude Acho, and I have with me Pastor Austin Cardi, and we're going to jump in to our discussion, continued discussion on James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. I want to encourage folks uh, right in the show notes, our Facebook group, Lit Pulpit, if you have different questions, you want to sort of engage on on the book as we're talking through it, reading along, uh, go ahead and, and do that there. Uh, Austin, uh, how are you today? I'm great, man. How are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, we're, we're getting into, uh, I think for me, one of the really um, compelling parts of this novel. And it's interesting, you know, just talking with people about um, about this novel from Baldwin and even some of the interaction in our uh, Facebook group uh, discussing the novel, people gravitate towards particular characters. And that's no new insight. That's That's just sort of the way we are. But uh, I really am fascinated um, and frightened by uh, the character uh, Gabriel. And uh, last episode, we talked about the section Florence's prayers, and now we're turning to the section Gabriel's prayers, um, Gabriel's prayer, rather. And uh, I just would love to hear initially from you just your sort of response to Gabriel as a character. And and for those maybe just to, to refresh, um, Gabriel is the uh, stepfather, uh, called the father in the novel of John Grimes, uh, minister, um, uh, deeply wounded and deeply toxic and, and abusive and, and really rigid in uh, unhealthy ways in his actions uh, and in his faith. And now in this section, we get a little bit of the peeling back of sort of his his story, uh, why he is the way he is. So your impressions of Gabriel having gone through this novel, you know, more, more than once. Like you, I find this a really compelling and rich chapter, the chapter on Gabriel's prayer. And I think one of the reasons that it feels so particularly rich is because we've spent close to 100 pages now, give or take, of encountering Gabriel in what feels to be an almost two-dimensional way, by which I mean he is frightening. He's domineering. There's not a whole lot up until Gabriel's prayer that is in any way, at least in my view, redemptive about the character. Um, he's harsh. He's he's cold. He's, again, domineering. And we don't yet have any real insight into why or his context or where he comes from. Um so I think it's natural that folks are rather than by and large drawn to the character of Gabriel early in the book. They are resistant to and find him in some ways uh, repulsive or, um, or repugnant. Um, but I think that this is a really rich and compelling chapter because it's not as if you walk away suddenly loving Gabriel. At least I don't know that, that most everyone does. Um, I certainly don't think that's the way I would categorize how I feel about Gabriel after uh, this chapter. But I do feel like you get to know Gabriel more and we get to understand a little bit more about Gabriel, about what makes Gabriel tick. Um, and there's just so much we learn from a plot standpoint, too, in this chapter. So there's a lot of riches to be had in this. And I'm really excited about our conversation about it. And maybe we can start here, which is sort of where uh, the chapter begins. Um, this, I think, is another great instance of how flashbacks are used through the novel and, and the sort of the function of time, which we've hit on in a couple of different episodes. Um, the present storyline of the novel is, you know, the, the night Terry service. Um, where uh, where everyone is there uh, at the church, but there's different moments in the service that draw particular characters back. And so for uh, Gabriel, 
um, there is a, a particular uh, silence in the church that's happening. Um, he, we have just heard uh, Florence kind of crying out in the service, Gabriel's sister, and Gabriel's response to that. You know, he's he's glad not that she's repenting or coming to Jesus, but that she's being humbled and, and kind of suffering and going through pain. Um, and so as that's happening, uh, her cry comes to him. Um, and it's, but then he also hears other cries, uh, and hears cries that remind him of his own cry. And, uh, it says that there's a sort of silence continuing like a corridor and it carried Gabriel back to the silence that preceded his birth in Christ. And then we're sort of moved into his conversion moment is really what we begin to see. Um, and I want to read this section about his conversion moment, because I think this is a really important, um, point of understanding Gabriel and who he is and why he is the way that he is. So on, on 89 in my, um, in my edition, this is what, uh, what Baldwin writes, uh, speaking of, uh, of Gabriel, um, and the role of his mother and praying for him. And Gabriel had lived a, a very, uh, sort of wild, uh, wild life prior to, this is what it says on 89 for he, Gabriel desired in his soul with fear and trembling all the glories that his mother prayed he should find. Yes, he wanted power. He wanted to know himself to be the Lord's anointed, his well-beloved, and worthy nearly of that snow-white dove which had been sent down from heaven to testify that Jesus was the Son of God. He wanted to be master, to speak with that authority which could only come from God. It was later to become his proud testimony that he hated his sins, even as he ran towards sin, even as he sinned. He hated the evil that lived in his body, and he feared it. And he feared and hated the loins of lust and the longing that prowled the defenseless city of his mind. It's hard to know where to stop with, with writing like this. I'll, I'll pause there because I think that does set out several different threads of, of Gabriel's sort of story. Um, we have this desire in his soul. We have the role of his mother. We have this wanting, this desire of power, um, but power not uh, sort of in a vacuum, but attached to being the Lord's anointed. Uh, we have sort of power, almost a messianic sort of chosen power, right, that's presented in this passage as well. And then we have the sort of later reflection that it was his proud testimony um, that he hated his sins, even as he fell into sin, which we're going to see as the story unfolds in this chapter, how he has this rise and fall in his, in his ministry. And then we also get this tension between um, his desires and this evil, this lust, right? This, um, this, this sort of passion that's inside of his body, right? So all of these things are, are, are presented here at this key, key point for Gabriel that are really central to the sort of a composition of his of his character and his and his narrative. Uh, when you think about Gabriel's conversion, um, and and how a reader might encounter this, what are some of the things that seem important for a reader to kind of sit with in thinking about Gabriel's conversion moment? Be- because his rise and fall is so dramatic, it, it's easy, I think, for a reader maybe first time through to kind of encounter Gabriel and really sort of despise um, despise him. But do you see anything, Austin, in this sort of description of his conversion that maybe suggests we need to add more to our understanding of Gabriel? I think so. I, I think that there's so much just in what you just read and said that warrants unpacking. I think we'd do well to connect 
the expectation that Gabriel felt under his mother's prayers with the same kind of expectation we talked about that John felt on his life. Um, Obviously, they manifest in different ways, and this book is primarily written through the lens of John's relationship to that expectation and burden and not Gabriel's. But nonetheless, Gabriel knew the way that his mother prayed over him and yearned over him and uh, treated him with a delicacy that Florence believed she never got the kind of um, favor for. Um, And so he had a psychological um, burden that's not unrelated to the one that we've already talked about that John carried. They carried them in different ways, but it's nonetheless a similar psychological burden that they would become uh, these exemplary Christians um, have a, um, an amazing grace moment, as it were, where once they were blind, now they see. And, and that leads me into something that I think is significant about how proud um, Gabriel became about his past sinning. Uh, I think that it's something that's very helpful for us, even contemporaneously, as we think about conversion Um, There is a trope that we're all very familiar with that the most kind of authentic Christian conversion is one that is really, really um, colorful, that Mm. the the worse one was or the more um, kind of grave and severe the moment of encounter with the Lord was or is that that's the more authentic and that's not to discount that there are moments where people have such severe uh encounters with the lord i I know that they do we're both pastors we've seen that um but there's a trope particularly within evangelicalism you know that uh the ones that really count the most are the ones where somebody has a testimony that's really really colorful and dramatic and if i heard one of those i heard a million of them growing up And uh, an evangelist uh, or a pastor, uh, more so an evangelist, but a pastor to anybody that was kind of making uh, evangelical coin off of giving testimony, uh, you knew that their testimony was better the more dramatic it was. And what happens is, and Karen Swallow Pryor's got a book coming out that touches on this in some ways. I haven't read all of it, but I was fortunate enough to get an, an advanced review copy enough read a little bit of it and it's a wonderful book, but about how that gets into an imagination and thus uh, folks uh, in ways that we don't know are shaped by that to where you're sitting back and you think either I need to make my testimony feel a little bit more dramatic or or possibly, possibly at the same time feel like, well, is mine really authentic? Because, I mean, I know I, I, I feel connected to, to the Lord, but I haven't had a dramatic moment quite like that one. So I think that's something that that, that we do well to, to touch on in Gabriel's conversion too. His being proud of his past sins is very much in keeping with uh, a trope that is very alive uh, and active today within the church. Mm. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. 
Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. It's interesting, too, because in the pages that follow, when Gabriel begins to preach, right, the real sign of his ministry is are people converted, you know, right on the spot of his preaching. So there's a sort of um, real strong appetite for kind of signs of the spectacular, right? These really stark, visible moments of, okay, this is, here. here's the Lord's blessing. Um, his conversion is dramatic. Um, his preaching needs to produce the same dramatic effect in others. And these become signs, right, of God's presence and blessing. And then when Gabriel falls, he's going to need another stark, dramatic, visible sign to demonstrate that he's been forgiven and restored. And um, I think throughout throughout the novel, the the, the shortcomings um, and, and really the kind of catastrophe of that mode of thinking, um, that mode of religious being where it needs to be these visible signs to really know God's grace is real, um, is is really demonstrated as, as being... Um, deeply flawed, right? And and causing all sorts of um, debris and chaos. I'm drawn in this section uh, about Gabriel's conversion. I'm really drawn to the power elements, right? You know, this is a strange thing, right? You know, if we, if we you know, we're, we're pastors, there's, um, um, you know, it would be really strange if somebody came up to us after a service and said, you know, I'm thinking about converting to Christianity because of the power, um, the power that is supplied, right? It makes me think of, um, you know, an axe when uh, Simon the magician is sort of like, "Hey, how do I? How much money do I need to pay to uh, to acquire this 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 powerful spirit that seems to be happening among you all, Peter?" You know, that is so. So it's a really, it's kind of odd, you know, um, and it, it's it's strange. And then it's also really strange. I think Baldwin is emphasizing. Um, you know, he want who wanted to be the Lord's anointed, right? We're like, oh, okay. But then he goes further. You know, his well beloved, worthy nearly of the snow white dove, which had been sent down to testify that Jesus was the Son of God, right? I mean, this is a this is a big yearning and longing for power. Um, how, what what do you make of this? How did this strike you? That's more fertile soil that we could uh, dig in for for a whole episode. It's a great question. Um, because one, I think it feels transactional. Uh, he feels like what he's left behind is so great that, uh, the power that he is entitled to wield on, on his transition, uh, needs to be commensurate. I think there's some of that just kind of human bartering going on at a, at a uh, psychological level, uh, that's, that, that's in need of being uncovered. I think also, though, it's important to note that, um, well, let me let me back up to say that I think we can work with uh, Martin Luther's framework of a theology of glory versus a theology of, the, theology of the cross here and contrast a sense of theology that gives us glory and power with, um, uh, in my view, much more um, biblical Christ-centered theology that uh, is ironically about divesting oneself of of power and glory and, and ironically finding it in that divestiture. But, but in so doing, it's also important that we note that we're talking about uh, a young man that has grown up uh, in poverty under the boot of abject racism that has not experienced power at all, um, that has been uh, internally and in many ways externally 
um, uh, repressed and oppressed and held back. And it is therefore not unnatural or surprising uh, that he would want to look for an avenue that was going to invest him with a real sense of power because he has not had it. So it's a lot easier for me as a privileged, you know, white male to sit here and look at and talk about how he has a theology of glory versus, you know, a, a theology of the cross and how he just wants power uh, and isn't humble. Uh, there's a lot more going on in that context than just somebody who's situated like me from birth wanting, you know, a little bit more power and Gabriel seeing an opportunity to have, you know, a real sense of power and authority that, that he might not have been able to feel before. I think that really enriches our, our kind of reading and engagement of Gabriel that he he is situated in this context in uh, in in the South, right, facing racism, facing racial violence, and so the longing for power makes sense. You know, we think of the, some of the earlier moments in the novel where we recognize what he, Florence, and his mother faced with the um, the news that uh, violent white men were coming through town, right, and, and the um, the the uh, violent assault on a, on a young young woman there in the community, and what that meant, and um, and the mark that that would leave on 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 them and and all in that community, right? And so you're, I think you're, it's really important to pick up that thread of, of power and how it relates to the wider context that Gabriel is inside of, and it helps sort of. Um, it really clarifies um, it really clarifies his character in a lot of ways without without um, removing you know the flaws in in inside of him individually, but it does situate him right um, in, in a way that's really important. And it's interesting because I think that sort of is a kind of undercurrent throughout the whole novel, right? And and that undercurrent will be shown to be uh, deeply powerful, even when we're not looking for it. You know, it, it will emerge in in really particular ways, as, especially as you get uh, we get into Elizabeth's prayer later in the novel. Um, but really throughout, and, and really showing the the strength. Um, the tragic strength of racism um, in, in in many different ways and forms. So I think that's a really important thing to to pick up on. Um, Gabriel is a, a really rich character, so we we want to you know kind of bring bring to a close this first sort of look at at him um, and his conversion and the kind of the context, and then we're going to turn um, to in, in our next episode uh, continuing to talk through Gabriel's um, kind of story, but particularly paying attention to the theme of forgiveness. Um, and beginning to zone in on sort of Gabriel's rise and fall, and then how he makes sense of of his fall and his sin in relation to forgiveness, and sort of uh, use using that as a way to explore kind of these default uh, theologies that we kind of carry inside of us um, that we don't really know we're there until kind of moments of of challenge and crisis come. So, uh, folks, I want to encourage y'all to um, to definitely pick up the book and read through. Um, you, hopefully you can gain a lot from the conversations apart from the book, but it will certainly enrich to, to jump in. Uh, check out the Facebook group. You can hop in there and uh, drop any questions or, or comments or ideas. We'd love to pick those up and run with those on the show. Uh, any any last word, Austin, from you? No. Always love these conversations, Claude. Can't wait for the next one. And yes, please, everyone, engage with us on Facebook. Claude will be much quicker to respond than I will, but we both <laughs> we both get to those and we We're love both it. in the mix. Yep. It, 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 it means a lot to us to know that people are listening and, and that it's uh, sparking thoughts. So uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And, and Claude, I look forward to the next conversation. Same, bro. Appreciate it. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Catch y'all next time.